This episode of the Round 6 Podcast is brought to you by Trailer Tug, the world's strongest trailer dolly. Learn more at TrailerTug.com. It's the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories. Hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Alex Welsh, and Brad King. Here on episode 65, the Gearheads sit down with founder, CEO, and lead designer at Icon 4x4 and TLC 4x4, Jonathan Ward. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Jonathan Ward. That's fantastic. Hey. Yeah, tonight we are uh, we are stoked to have with us uh, Jonathan Ward from Icon, and y- you may know him from my gosh. Well, for our typical listener, if there is a typical listener, you guys may know his name and his uh, his company from a ton of really high profile SEMA show builds. I mean, every year, every year, you guys kill it there. Has, has there been a year in the past few that you guys haven't anything really kick ass? Hopefully, every time we've gone with something, it was cool. We try and bring really nifty stuff, but we have to, like, there's all sorts of challenges because it has to be timed with something that's kind of sort of at least almost done or looks done or done, but not so done that the client's wanting it in his driveway because <laughs> we don't build really pretty much anything on spec, so we're always having to beg, borrow, and steal client cars when we go. But it's a fun show. Right on. And you, guys, you guys do such a unique thing. Uh, how do you even begin here? Let, let, okay, well, let's, 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 let's hear your take. Like, what for your listener base that doesn't know who the hell I am and why the heck you'd want to talk to me, what, um, how would you try and describe? Because I struggle with it myself. Like, what is Icon? Why, why Icon? Who cares? You're, you're a company that takes a, an older vehicle, namely one that has some kind of a nostalgic value to the client, and you, mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better word, you reinvigorate these vehicles. You supply them with modern driveline technology, things to make them more reliable and drivable while still retaining the character of that vehicle. Boom, you nailed it. Drop the mic. Well done. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, I mean, you, you guys are more than, I, I really, I dislike the word resto mod. It never worked for me. Yeah, um, me neither. I, I don't know if you guys follow But I, until, I like, struggle. I don't know if there's a, a word for it yet. I mean... I guess we can make one up. We might as well start now. But like, you know, Raymond Lowy is one of my favorite industrial designers that inspired me and sort of led me down this path. He, the term industrial designer didn't exist. You know, he just decided it sounded good one day and named himself that. And here you go. Now, now you can get a degree in it. Preserve a mod. Yeah, no. Uh, a couple more years. <laughs> but yeah, the whole like the essence of it is is, is like trying to capture the the grace and the beauty of the design era of a vehicle, but then getting rid of all of the martyrdom that is the realistic association, you know, when you're dealing with driving a vintage vehicle in the modern world. And then depending on the year, right, some years they're really pretty, but then the execution in detail, you could tell the focus groups and the finance managers or economic pressures, took them farther away from 
the original industrial art of trying to build it as strong and as simple and as long lasting as possible. Right. So then there's opportunities where then you'll re invent or you'll, you, you'll know the knob is cool, but they executed it in crap plastic. So then you can scan it and be inspired by it, but then execute it in stainless or some new nifty material. So it makes it so exciting for, for us. It's just constantly tweaking and reaching and changing and questioning and it's good fun. Totally not a reasonable business, but better than a real job fun. Like I, I you know, I get to support <laughs> 50 families and at the shop plus all our sublets and, and we, we all live a good life. No one's getting rich, but the, the pride in, uh, in what we're doing is pretty cool. The business intellect, you know, we've made it as smart as we can, but it's just so complicated. Well, it's was... like you guys are building the vehicle that the original designer would hope and dream that his vehicle would eventually morph into at some point in its life. Yeah. In essence, that's a fun way to think of it. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes we'll even do like sort of, we'll throw in a little bit of revisionist uh, history to when I'm setting like the design parameters on a particular project where, for example, we'll say, all right, uh, a 70s Superbird they were cool in a almost obscene sort of 1970s Detroit way, but the execution really wasn't as cool, right? There's just rubber and plastic and plastic and plastic because they were cutting corners and trying to stay alive and reduce costs. But who was the best designer in 70 for like consumer goods and architecture and all that? In my opinion, like Mies van der Rohe was rocking it, but he had nothing to do with cars. So when we look at that super bird and we talk about how we're going to evolve and elevate it, the fun theoretical revisionist history conundrum is to say, okay, well, what if Mies van der Rohe had been on the design team? Like, what if? What what what, what would he have created? And it's uh, it's really fun to like set those almost like forced perspectives in setting up what the theme of a vehicle or the approach is going to be. It would be fun. The the thing I like though is you guys haven't like pigeonholed yourselves. You, you don't do themey kind of vehicles where you know you're like, hey, we've we've got this, you know, this particular vehicle here. And at the time, um, you know, the Brady Bunch was really cool, and Cool and the Gang had a hit song, so everything's going to be based on the color palette from the Brady Bunch home kitchen. And you know, this <laughs> is going to have seat inserts made from Alice's. You know, whatever made uniform. <laughs> you guys, you guys have avoided that shag carpet, lots of shag. Well, of course. Well, that goes without saying. I mean, now you're making the job sound fun. Actually, that could be, <laughs> could be an interesting bunch of confines, and we're, we're, we're <laughs> which you know what? Sometimes clients bring us the craziest ones, and and um, that again is hopefully part of the fun challenge. Versus, how do you say no because you do so few? That kind of really everything that goes out the door, you got to be proud of, and that that keep the passion is the true incentive. So when people call sometimes and you know want neon underglow and a fish tank in the trunk, and they've watched too much late cable reality shows, and it's like, how do you say no without being a jerk? That was that was my I actually had that question yeah. queued up for you because. It, in in my line, you know, I, I did for hell fifteen solid years, I was nothing but a hot rod designer. So a lot of what I've done has been steering people away from the really bad 
and trying to keep them on kind of a straight and narrow path to make the car the best it can possibly be. And cool. There, there are times to do that. You've got to be really, I don't want to say, you can't be political because in today's climate, that just means arguing with someone on Facebook. Don't get me wrong, yeah. I can do that all day too. But that that weird, you've got to find a balance where you say, look at, okay, maybe we take your idea and we, you know, we take that tweed interior and we bring it a little bit over toward, you know, ultra leather with a tweed insert. And th- there's a fine line with that. Do you do you find you have to deal with that a lot, or do you get a customer who comes in and says, "Look, I really trust your judgment. However, I do want this artificial hip replacement for my shifter knob." Yeah, that was really a fun. Uh, that was a fun setup that worked out well. But you know, sometimes you know it could be the antithesis to that, and then you have an issue. But I think first of all, like defining the brand, like going into it, I felt that sort of our, our engineering approach to how we looked at doing this was so different that I had to create a unique aesthetic for the vehicles to help people understand, stop, digest, like, oh, this is something different because it looks different. And then you explain, no, it really is different. But over the years, it's like more people really seem to fortunately know the brand and more importantly, like what it, what it stands for, what we believe in. I've been able to get back into a softer, more retro, funk, vintage look and style. So we introduced the what we're calling the old school edition of the FJ and the Bronco and soon of the Thriftmaster, which are our three production models. But in the beginning, it was it's tough because, you know, you got to pay the bills and keep the lights on, like payroll to payroll to payroll to payroll. So it's hard to not turn down work. But I think over the years, and my wife and I have been doing this with our first brand, TLC, the Land Cruiser one, and now Icon for 27 years, all in all. Like, we, we were three weeks into the job, and he was yelling that the renderings are taking long on, you know, and the whole car should be done in five months. I've seen plenty of shows. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> but, like, I was just having to, like, grin and bear it and deal with it because, you know, we, we need the job. And my wife really called it out and said it quite succinctly and uh, kind of uh, important thing that we've learned to kind of respect and remember, which is this only works well one way. And it's that's if we love to be creating something for someone and they in turn love us to be creating it. So you can't be afraid. I almost feel in any business to it's blunt, but like to fire a customer, you know, unless you're, target or where the customer is always right. They're not necessarily always right, especially if it involves design and engineering, which in many cases is like a a personal choice or or perspective opinion. But in short order, it's also fun to just do like three renderings representing the choices that you want to present them. And one of them is like full CGI, badass drop shadow in an environment. And the other two look like South Park sketches. And then you can sort of indirectly uh, uh, steer people towards the design decision uh, that you want to make. <laughs> that is but, one of the secrets to, to my whole career. It's always been, yeah. the, the one you want is always slightly larger on the page and just a l- yep. little closer yep. to reality. Auto GIF rotating and environment, <laughs> mood music. <laughs> 
But, you know, I think I've been really lucky in that, you know, when, when I started the brand, it was just because I didn't see anyone doing what I would want to drive. And I'd been tinkering and hobbying building cars myself and been able to define the company like the companies. If I'd like to think you look at any of our trucks and you kind of smell it's one of ours in that there's a consistent aesthetic. Well, there's I, that's probably not true. There's a consistent engineering approach and consistent, you know, emulation done and repeatability and fit and finish quality. But then the cosmetic sense of the brand, we can do the derelict style where it looks like it's abandoned in a field or it could be new school or it could be old school. But there's a certain level of continuity that I really try to take pride and keep up. Do you find that uh, one particular style is more popular with your clients than another, like, say, is the derelict style? Do you find that that kind of comes and goes in waves? You know, it's funny. People are either thumbs up, big smile, all in, digest and appreciate the derelicts in a nanosecond, or they just think it's the most ridiculous, absurd waste of time and money to spend all that money on something that looks like crap. <laughs> There's like decidedly <laughs> two completely polarized, isolated camps. But, you know, it's weird. It, it, I think like between our different production models, there's no rhyme or reason. I generally will never sell one of one and then move on to one of another. For some weird reason, uh, alignment of the planets, like you sell one Bronco, you two or three will sell right on its heels, and then you won't sell Broncos for three or four weeks, and then all people want are FJs or Thriftmasters. But I think with the recent addition of the old school, I don't know if the tastes are changing or if it's that we're appealing to a wider range of folk, but the I'm seeing a lot of old school orders come into the point that yeah, it's like says six, 60% new school, 40% old school. And given the history that the new school had, I found that quite surprising. And, and then plenty of female clients, which is cool. Yeah, I think that's really cool because that was, you know, kind of one of the things I wanted to get to with you is finding out where you guys sat. You know, do, do you have female clients? Because I know, for lack of a better word, I know a lot of women who love trucks. And they seem to be, it's funny when you talk to a woman about a truck, it's not the same way a guy looks at a truck. You know, guys are like, oh, man, it's got to be slammed down on 24s and 22s and this and that. And most, most women are going, well, what I'd really like is like, like a really cool forerunner with like, you know, coilovers, four and a half inch lift, something that's going to be usable. And you go, wow, they're really into the tech specs. This is kind of cool. Yeah, I think guys maybe are a little bit more open to martyrdom of archaic mechanical and then sort of the nostalgia angle. Whereas if we're generalizing, maybe women, it's more emotional, like it, it relates whatever that truck or convertible or whatever it is that's like in their cultural experience. It's the memories and it's the aesthetic of it that they love. But like with men and women, many clients who like get to the point in life where they, they can have an extra toy car or two or God knows how many. And they go, oh, you know, the one I've always lusted over was the always wanted a GTO or whatever it is in their mind's eye. 
and they go out and they buy the nicest one they can find. And it, it, it could be a pig with lipstick or it could be proper in concourse. But almost invariably, unless they're already like embedded routine vintage car people, I think very quickly, like in a matter of miles, they're like, oh, God, this stinky, this is rattly, <laughs> that panel's not staying down, uh, the brakes don't seem like they work, I, you know? Steering. I think people are, and myself included, right, and which is part of the driver for Icon, is we get corrupted by the perversions of modernity. You know, one by one, all those changes and little doodads and knickknacks and conveniences that we find in modern cars is intoxicating. I to a point. And the next thing you know, your your car needs an update every two months and is like getting on the iPhone schedule as far as uh, disposability. <laughs> <Yeah>. Self-obsolescence <laughs> engineering is just getting yeah. downright really bad, I think. I mean, it's getting really good, but culturally it just seems suicide move to just all this stuff now is just so temporary and Mm-hmm. and all sorts of consumer goods and housing and even infrastructure. It's like, oh, my God, what are we doing? None of this stuff's going to last. That's the problem. I'm, see, maybe we need to go about this a different way. What if you come up with a line for the guy who wants to be that martyr every day and you, you throw a knob on the dash that mimics like a choke, but all yeah. it does is it just changes the timing and the spark curve and everything? Yeah, and just... <laughs> Yeah, floods it all out, <laughs> floods the injectors, yeah. washes the rings. You want a little old school? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Is like sometimes we'll, you know, like an exhaust note is part of the conversation with that client. You know, do you, do you want it to be full-on sleeper? Do you want packed mufflers and resonators and restrictions? But now you're adding fiberglass and synthetic packers and it's not going to have a longevity. Or do you want to wake up all the kids in the neighborhood? Do you want it loud or like a-hole loud? You know, and, <laughs> but with all these modern powertrain choices, it's interesting how pretty significantly you can change the that the entire mood or personality of the vehicle merely via the exhaust tone. Definitely. Yeah. It's like, it's like pulling up at a light next to, you know, a, like a CTSV. It might be the coolest looking car at idle. When he takes off, you find out that, you know, it's open headers. You know. I love that powertrain, man. I miss the LS9. We're almost out of them. We just fit one of our last ones in this really special uh, derelict that we're building, a 49 Hudson coupe an original paint black car and we're building it for just just one of my all-time favorite clients who's become a good friend and uh, the whole mission of the car is it's a rockabilly bar hopping band listening weekend in nashville fun vehicle so, so of course that paragraph had to end with a dry sump blown ls9 of course <laughs> Right, because when you think think rockabilly, you think dry sun fellas nine, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or I do. I do now. I have these really cool. uh, I have this. Yeah, now I've ruined it. The uh, I had these really cool speaker grills, or actually just a single one that I found in the trunk of this crazy barn find thirty-seven Lincoln Zephyr that we had purchased, and it's the cleft symbol cast in aluminum, and it was like for some aftermarket vintage early early radio. So when the client presented this concept on this build, I on WhatsApp, he, he lives overseas mostly, and I'm sending him pictures of this girl. I'm like, this would be cool. And he's the kind of client who's, who's more inclined to say, like, what 
ever design decision, like build it like you're going to keep it. We've done so many projects together. There's such a like relationship and understanding that he generally lets me geek out. So we uh, had those sand casts and, and reproduced them and integrated them into the car. And uh, we're doing a wild caught alligator interior that I uh, went down to Atlanta and, and bought in crust. And then I am hand dyeing every single tile of the gator interior um, with this really cool pigment system that I studied. It's like seven different layers of colors and different suspensions, but the end result is like funky blue green faded beat up vintage looking alligator, like a good pair of Nashville boots. Wow. Oh, it's saw... just ridiculous. So many fun details on it. There's a teaser of that online. Yeah, I've done it on our Instagram. I post progress on it and uh, all the way through to doing that interior and its first drive out into the light and we're really uh, excited we got invited to debut it at the Quail Show up at Pebble Beach. Oh, and there's just cool. nothing better nor more disruptive than bringing an icon derelict to Pebble Beach. It's like, <laughs> it's like one guy in a, you know, in a kilt with no underwear amongst the yeah. sea of tuxedos. So it, right. it's just so disruptive. They get so much love. Alex, Probably you know that feeling. Scorn too, but. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a derelict sitting between a uh, a Delahaye and a and a Duesenberg. It's awesome. Yeah, perfect. I awesome. love it. I can tell you which one gets more road time. Guarantee. Heck yeah. I wonder. Yeah, too. my wife won't let me. I wanted to uh, drive that up to PCH. She's like, no. So we're gonna transport <laughs> it. And then actually, our uh, 51 Merc electric derelict got invited up uh, to show up there as well. So now I'll be a responsible boy and put them on transporters. Oh man, say it ain't so. Don't do that. I know. Well, we've I've only broken down, I think, twice in all my years of doing it the MacGyver style and just driving whatever we just finished building up there, generally at the last minute without proper vetting and road test miles. So Yeah, one on one would be such a great road in that rockabilly car. Just, you know, run oh, straight be, up the coast. Yeah, so much awesome. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I we I'm so I keep taking you guys down these massive long tangents. But if I recall the question correctly, yes, like the derelicts, I guess quite obviously by my 10-minute rant, uh, are probably are definitely my favorite to build because they're, they're like high-functioning sculptures and so much story to tell. And 90% of the story is before we even came on the scene to add our story with the engineering and design choices and stuff we make. So they're, they're just so immersive. i got to say, with, with some of the cars that you've built, because they're, they're kind of obscure. They're not the normal deal, except for like the Thriftmaster stuff that you're messing with. But trying to find parts for some of these cars has got to be gotta be a nightmare. Yeah, it can be a major drag. Um, you know, we have an in-house laser, which has become our best friend for like gaskets and simple non-dimensioned rubber pieces. We've been getting more and more progressive with uh, 3D printing. Uh, we've got a five-axis hoss uh, in-house and barely know how to use it, but we got one. Um, and we're, you know, we yeah, we got to get crafty. We've sometimes had to pay for custom windshields for cars that no one makes windshields for anymore. And, oh, God, is that a pucker moment. Or custom <laughs> rubber extrusions because no, no one else gives a damn about that weird orphan car we picked. And we need wing window rubbers, so if you need them, you need them. And it just becomes a pigeonhole of time, energy, and money, but it's 
it's a great victory, like when you pull it off. But not to not to discount the work that goes into having to make these parts one off, but we're kind of in that that really sweet spot, almost a golden age, where anything you want with the right effort and, and a big enough checkbook too, you can make anything you want or need. Totally, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Like to me, it's like the dot com era for creators. And with the, the weird contrast that I see, especially in automotive, is while all these new amazing resources and capabilities and, and technologies and software and scanners and stuff, the, the evolutionary rate is just more and more accelerated. Meanwhile, you've got Bertone and all these classic custom houses either getting absorbed and becoming like a creative think tank room and a plaque on a door at a big OEM or they're just sheer going out of business and it doesn't make sense it seems like there it should be the wild wild west of new opportunities and, and new stuff coming out exactly and it, it, it's that is a really weird dichotomy if you look at it we've had on the podcast before uh, one of our guests we, we had uh, we had Dave and Lyle from Speedcore. And it's uh-huh. a company that's really super advanced as far as, you know, composites and working with things like that. On the flip side, we had Marcel Delay, who is... Yeah, who's English wheeling, paneling out everything by hand. Exactly. And it's it's funny that we live in a world where those two can exist side by side, but it always seems like the barometer kind of shifts to one side or the other, depending on, you know, where the mood is in the hobby or the industry at that point. Well, also, I think you can just blame it on mankind in, in, in the sense that best way to try and explain what I'm trying to say is a, a story where we wanted to do a big, big R&D project, and we came up with this solution for a rear package tray that was required by the design because of the height of the seat back and the three-point belts we were implementing and, and a lot of the changes and even like Satlink and some tech that had to sit back there. So we could tee it up this super sexy profile and getting it all together. And as we get closer to like really falling in love with the look of it and, and all the function it provides, then we start coming back to reality for how do we execute, right? And how do you tool it? Or oh, if, how do we get a, well, tooling? We can't, we're not good at amortizing tooling. Our volume is like too stupid low to do that with the right partners. So we started playing with different ideas for 3D printing and adhering with the right products, uh, a heat sustainable substrate for it that then we could put in a heat chamber and a vacuum chamber and wrap in the OEM vinyl that you'd use on that in OEM production. So like we went to the guy for custom dashes and it, it, it like eyes glazed over, like what, no. What we do is we take your old one and then we take and we crack, fill those cracks and we shave this down and then we bondo that. And like he was so <laughs> stuck in, I guess like in any arts, right? Or industrial arts or fine arts, people get into a rhythm. And I think there's a point at which many of us stop like questioning or thinking or evolving. And like what I was saying was too disruptive to his status quo. And they just couldn't get their head around it. Versus, you know, I could go to an aerospace firm and, you know, reverse my file and do a female and do a pre-preg plug and, like, go that route. Or I could tool up or I could roto-mold. It would be a boat anchor. But but it's interesting. <laughs> I just think people get, like, 
stuck in a routine, you know. Yeah, there's some and, comfort. Um, yeah. And I think in, in my case, I have no training, no degrees, no right to do what I do on by education. I, I just am always twitching, touching, looking, tinkering, rethinking, like drawing in stuff from other industries, frankly, because I probably don't know any better. But if my goal is to evolve and make a product finer, make something the best it can be, a lot of time those solutions aren't in transportation. Yep. You know, they're they're in other sectors, and that I think carries all the way through to R and D and advanced materials and surface coatings and like all these ceramic nanoparticle products that are evolving in the oleophobics and the hydrophobics. Like that's one I'm super fascinated by and really uh, trying to stay present on it. It changes so quickly. Are you the type that's always looking at things and, and trying to, uh, maybe not even transportation things like you had mentioned before, like maybe looking at a piece of furniture or looking at a, an appliance and looking to see if maybe you can apply some of that thinking into your own product? Are you that type? Oh, totally. Like a lock, stock, and barrel. I mean, uh, like the, we use this really cool ribbed uh, stainless steel uh, on all of our Bronco New School interiors for like the quarter and the door panels and some inserts and some other machine bits. And I was actually in Chicago at a uh, media meeting, and in the elevator I noticed they had this super cool stainless ribbed material. Oh, that's cool. So I went and did my business there and then tracked down the manager, <laughs> managing engineer of the building. Where do you guys get that stuff? And got to that contact and ended up applying it or saw a really cool pair of super sexy, highly functional sun visors in uh, a private plane cockpit and then that's now my visor supplier and friend who builds wacky like magical uh, mega yachts and that's like not my world whatsoever <laughs> Riza Tansu his yachts are, f are just unbelievable they're, on, they're like they're just nuts but anyway like a lot of the LED stuff that we get came from his supplier base because it's just a whole different world. There's so much cool stuff to, to dig up. Like even our upholsteries, Chilowich on the Bronco New Schools. And when I reached out even directly to Chilowich when I first saw the product, which is like this, you've seen it, you'd recognize it instantly from literally placemats is its biggest market all over the world at restaurants, big and small. But they do wall covering and hallway runners and patio furniture. And we reached out to him. I said, hey, you know, I love your stuff. Saw it. My friend was uh, running Design Within Reach at the time, and they carried it. And so I want to use it in transportation. And they're like, no, we don't do that. I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> like, your dry rub rating, your bacterial, your UV, like all your ratings are like 10 times better than accepted norm in transportation. Like, it would be perfect for it. And they wouldn't sell to me. So I ended up buying some uh, pieces from Design Within Reach and deconstructed the buggers and built them into uh, a CJ that we were building at the time that ended up on the cover of the New York Times auto section. And then the owner, Sandy Chilowich, reaches out and says, oh, cool, you used our product, love it, great. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Your cubicle dwellers told me to piss off and go away. And, like, and now we have a great relationship. But, yeah. I, but again, I think that goes back to that uh, human nature where we, we sometimes uh, don't want to be constantly exploring. And you could argue a better businessman would concur as well, right? Like I should just build 
one model and knock out as many as I can to a good enough standard as I can get away with and sell them for the most money I can if this was purely a business motivated scenario. But it's really the art of it that's uh, that drives me and then trying to make it a relatively sustainable business in the end because I have to. But I'd be stoked if I didn't have to sell anything. I'd be building all sorts of crazy stuff, giving them away to my friends. It, to me, it's just the, the process of imagining and designing and executing is just so so interesting and, and so fulfilling. That's what I, I think really attracted me to your company. You, you walk that line. I mean, it's it's tough in the automotive world anyway. If you're bolting any kind of car together, you've got to walk that line between profit and passion. And yeah. With with your builds, not to fanboy this, I, I could I could gush all over this all day long, but it really shows through not only in, in your you know the vehicles you're building because I never want to call that product. There's a there's a very big difference between you know product to me is a Kia, what you guys do yeah product's a, a commodity yeah right yours is a passion build, and it really kind of you know it shows through again in the finest details I mean. You look at one of your cars, you go, wow, this is where they got, you know, this idea from. And I wonder if they were inspired by this. And you think there's a bunch of people working here who really just get it. You know, and yeah. I, and I, and that, that in itself is a challenge. Like, I'm super lucky to have a really strong team. And, and some of my people have been with me now 20 years. But realistically, the the designs that I want to create in thus far obviously transportation and then designed my first watch and released that last year. And I got all of the sorts of stupid ideas to keep revisiting vintage things in a modern context and a bunch of furniture things I'd love to explore, but I'm going against the grain of what unfortunately our, our schooling system has become um, in, in sort of the criminalization of blue collar, as I call it, where there's less and less respect for the art of the hand and the mind and more and more trying to steer us to a world of just merely being service providers and consumers of crap. And that's all that we need uh, culturally, which just kills me. So trying to find guys that have the skill sets that, that our sort of lunacy requires it's just such a challenge. It's so hard because it's just not, it's not ingrained in people unless they had a granddad or a personal passion or reason to pursue it. Just, uh, I think we're, we're being very negligent, um, culturally and, and not, uh, really empowering and exploring the blue collar art. Well, what's weird too is if you go online, if you look at social media, there, there's a certain group of, like the the artisans or the guys who you know or the craftsmen that work with their hands like it's funny if like if you're like if you're making like artisanal ashtrays out of I, I don't know like repurposed chunks of wood from some old growth oak that fell over due to natural causes and you've got a cool hipster beard you seem to be <laughs> kind of celebrated but meanwhile the guy who's out there you know literally trying to scrounge around in a wrecking yard trying to find you know a part of a grill for a 57 Buick so he can bolt this car back together. He's looked down upon because that job means nothing. It's, it's That's another weird kind of contrast. Yeah, that I, just can't I, my I, head around. I agree. But, you know, I, that I do feel I, I, getting better, at least from the consumer's perspective, meaning when I started this, everyone with a brain that we knew, so we're completely out of our minds. And our little industrial mall where we were, 
our friend Joey's shop had a pool on the wall, and everyone was betting which month we would tank, you know. Oh, nice. And, yeah, that's sweet. Ah, fuck them. They're all out of business. I'm still, I'm still rolling strong. <laughs> They're all gone. But 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 I think it's it's very interesting in that over the years, just by luck, I've definitely seen a resurgence in like the consideration of craft in like consumers being more apt to put more thought into buying their next whatever and, and look for something that represents more than, you know, the cheapest possible backpack you can buy that'll break and fall apart in 60 days versus a handcrafted one that costs five times as much that'll last 20 times as long through to their transportation decisions or their their love for that kick-ass hand-done wooden ashtray when they could have used a styrofoam cup. Right. So I, I, I am happy to see the sort of a, not just in the States, but uh, a resurgence in, in craftsmanship and markets supporting that craft. But it doesn't have to be a rich guy's game either necessarily. I, there's all sorts of way to express that consideration as a consumer and, um, or just if getting your own self reinvigorated and passionate, like working with your hands and making stuff like just, just fills the soul in ways that, uh, I haven't figured out how else to do it, but I haven't tried too hard cause I'm a serial craftsman. I love exploring all sorts of different crafts and skill sets and, kind of jump around over the years try and learn everything i can that's the cool thing too that's that's kind of an ongoing thing in in our industry kind of being that renaissance man where i i think it's it always starts off like like did you start off with bmx bikes or skateboards or anything like that as a kid yeah, I mostly, uh, I was a big Legos geek, and then my little side hustle starting when I was about eight was in our crappy apartment building going into the trash chute rooms after school every day and finding all the, like, personal electronics and things that people would discard but not send down the chute. So, you know, a boombox in the cassette player wasn't working, and I'd take them apart and get them working again and then hustle them and try and sell them to to people uh in my life (laughs) i think i started there but you know i was in new york city so cars weren't even in a consideration other than a fascination and something i'd always appreciated but when i moved to southern california when i was 15 and heard you can get a license at 15 and a half and like it was on (laughs) so i started my first restoration was before i had my license i was doing a resto and i used to before i went wayward i used to do them right so dead stock all the factory imperfections recreated and just slowly over time was like eh why am i doing it this way like i don't want to drive it this thing sucks to drive or why would i leave that primer it should have had a full coat of paint well that's the way it was done well yeah but there's a lot of things we used to do we don't do the same way anymore including wiping our butt and there's a good reason for it because we figured out better ways like that's <laughs> <laughs> so good fun though so what was your first resto uh, my first resto was a 55 Ford Tudor four-door plain Jane sedan that was actually an ex-G-Man car that I bought at some crappy auction. Uh, and it was it had bulletproof glass in it, none of which rolled down, and it had no heat and no AC, and it was just absurd. And I loved it dearly and 
took it apart and restored it and eventually went to sell it. And the dealer at the used car lot I went to consign it at uh, stole it and never came back to work and kept it. And then it's funny, like nine years later, that car came right back into my lap in the exact same condition. Like some yeah, tow yard huh? calls me, hey, uh, yeah, your car's here. You know, it's 80 bucks. I'm like, oh, what car? And I'm counting my cars. And I'm good. <laughs> so it's kind of funny uh, how that came back. And then I think my first mod, I did a 34 three-window street rod build, for lack of a better term. Um, and that was super fun. And then the floodgates just uh, never got fully shut again. You get that weird gateway. You get one car or one thing that just starts you down that path, and there's no going back. Right, but aren't all the best things in your life rabbit holes of such in one way or another? You know, the love for your wife or hate for your ex-wife or whatever your situation might be, or the things we get into, the history we study, the people we want to dive deep into. I, I think that's what makes life so interesting and so dynamic is there's so many things that you can really decide to stop and thoroughly consider and question and and learn and experience and it makes uh it makes it great well and you that speaking of different uh different interests man you had a really interesting childhood yes i did oh <laughs> It's, it's yeah, really um, interesting because all the things that uh, have happened and transitions and opportunities, I've never been one to really firmly plot a course so much as, again, remain sort of open because one lily pad might take you across a different lake than you thought you wanted to go anyway, but you just never know who you're going to meet or what happens. And it just happens throughout my life and just created all these cool experiences and I met Berenchnikov through my godmother, and like I was a sort of middle-class kid in a farm town in Maryland, and she was in D.C. and was a senator's wife, and my parents made sure that uh, we had a relationship with her. She was magnificent, and they wanted to make sure that my sister and I were exposed to more culture than had been afforded my parents in their small town. And, like, met Brinchnikov, his first U.S. appearance, and he asked why I didn't dance, and I didn't know what to say, so I said what I usually said, which was my excuse for all the sports I sucked at, is I'm too short, because I was a super tiny kid. And apparently that was the wrong thing or the right thing to say to him, because I guess everyone had given him a hard time and said he'd never be anything of a dancer uh, because of his height, so... He set me up with the Baltimore Repertory Dance Company and started doing that over the summer. And one of the kids in that was going to the big New York City. And again, my mom thought it'd be cool if I got to go to the city and paid for uh, my way to hitch a ride and just experience the city. And they were going for this big open, what they call a cattle call, where anyone with a heartbeat can sign up for Peter Pan on Broadway. And I was bored, so... I'm like, all right, signed up and just copied what the kids next to me were doing and uh, ended up getting it. And it's just like one thing leads to another. It's just been a fun ride. So he had a good long uh, career as an actor, and that's what brought me out to California. But I don't know, I think it, it kind of ran its cycle out of stalker that got really scary and made me question, why am I doing this, right? Like if the goal is to be famous and I see how really screwed up lives my famous friends had, and everyone's got 
preconceived notions of who you are and privacy issues and all that. It's like, so if that's not exciting, then what are you doing? And uh, the cars are my hobby, and my wife was in music management. I talked her into quitting, and we both quit. Turned my car hobby into a business thing, and just kind of kept running and growing ever since. And wouldn't have planned it any better, but would have never anticipated <laughs> all the different directions and courses. But I, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when you said, "Honey, I need you to quit your job. Here's the plan." Well, let me let me frame it for you a little better. We were in South Africa in the Transvaal, which is some of the most beautiful land on the planet, in my opinion. And I had about a bottle of wine into her, and she already hated her job. So I I I, I framed it up as good as I could. But uh, you know, we were young. We weren't married yet. We didn't have kids. We didn't have all the responsibilities that we have at, at this age. And so it, other than it being a risk it was exciting to literally jump in both feet immerse ourselves and really commit to it you know it just took leveraging a couple credit cards and pulled it together and just started and tried to keep going one truck at a time as far as as far as like your marketing goes who was behind that was it did you have a vision for this or is this something that just kind of grew kind of organically as the company grew well, I had a very clear vision on what I wanted the company to be about and what I wanted to explore. And then the way those ended up expressing themselves as far as the, you know, the derelicts or the reformers or Witcher production and Witcher one-offs and all of that was far more organic in response to my mood, stuff that would catch my eye, stuff that I would hear repeated requests about or vehicles I always loved and hated for the right reasons that meant it was promising for us to approach it, but pretty, I mean, almost irresponsibly, like, thank God it's just Jamie and I, and we don't have a board and investors and stuff because I've really been awarded thus far, um, the allowance to really keep it truly about what we're passionate to, to realize and see created or, get past that engineering challenge we haven't seen someone get past you know so uh until i have to uh be doing free brake inspections and whatever to keep the lights on it's it's easy to just accept that but it's it's I'm, i try to always remember and remind myself what a luxury that is but again going back to marketing i think by really working hard to define what we were and what we weren't i think that that really helped set that tone to like not be afraid to not take any job that comes around and to really be somewhat a Tory Bugatti level maniacal about trying to protect the DNA of the brand because that's the only way I'll stay engaged and passionate, therefore loving what I'm doing. Therefore that same effect will roll through my entire team and eventually into the product. And then I'm just another putts putting paint on old cars and trying to make money <laughs> i just want to go there <laughs> what's kind of cool though is with your brand surely pat i'm preaching to you about your brand let me tell you about your brand jonathan no i no, i love hearing it it's 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 just kind of weird <laughs> your your builds have this this kind of this unique quality where like I'll, I'll see what you guys have what you guys are working on and it's almost like it begs you to kind of hijack the brand message 
and kind of warp it in your own head into what you see that build as. Like, like when we talked about the, the Rockabilly Cruiser, you've got a Hudson Hornet for crying out loud that, hey, just a cool car to begin with, and you guys have made it just that whole lot cooler. In my head, when I saw a couple of the pictures and I saw that video of it rolling through the shop, all I could think was I, I immediately put my own spin on it, which is kind of a cool thing for me because, and one of the things we talk about a lot here on the podcast is kind of how jaded we are. I mean, the three of us are kind of embedded in this industry and you get flooded with million plus dollar builds and stuff like that. So it's rare that one kind of tugs at you a little bit. This one, I immediately pictured myself behind the wheel cruising that car. And I think that's a rare find in our industry. You know, well, you... I appreciate that. I, I think that that's super cool that it has that effect on you. And I'd like to think that's because the purity of the execution and the passion behind the team that's executing it and the client who's allowing us to, to do it and call it a job are all on the same page, you know? So it's, it's not, a, I mean, let's face it, any, everything's a series of compromises, but it's a build done as much as possible focused on the art of its creation, which is hopefully what leaves you, you know, further envisioning changes. Like I get a lot of heat for running the LSs. I love the LS and people are like, Oh, you should put a straight eight or a this or a Merlin or all these crazy <laughs> yeah. things. And it's like, eh, well, yeah, you could, you know, but the reason I use them and they're absolutely bulletproof and globally distributed. And there's already been plenty of idiots before me. You've already had every stupid idea I've had to repurpose one or reconfigure it or change the Fiat or the injectors or the pulley, you know, you name it. And it's, it's like in the watchmaking world when a guy geeks out and hand makes his movement, that's great for him and that must feel amazing. But then what, there's like one dude in the world who knows how to fix it when it breaks and it's a complicated mechanical device, it's gonna break. Of course, well, yeah. it just, just freak people out. Say we've decided we're only, we're only gonna run the, uh, the General Motors uh, Iron Duke four cylinder and everything mm. from now on. Yeah. There you go. Super that'll reliable. Sound sound, that'll sound great with a performance exhaust. Yeah, <laughs> that or like a four BT. You know, nice big stinky rattly boat anchor. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's that goes back to that like it's it's you 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 evolve and you work to make all these things more refined and then a decision like that really is a, that's for a different shop because that's a different hopefully passion and perspective and it's worthy of pursuit. But we just might not be the right guys because we don't see it that way. Stuff you're doing, it's it's got some little little trick deals, but you're still keeping it simple enough where you can just get the thing go. Right. Yeah, like I'm not trying to build a Riddler car or anything like that. Like I want my stuff to be whomped on. So yeah, I'm 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 trying to always find that balance, and especially with the four wheel drives, there's a challenge because I always compare it to building an amphibious car. You always ended up with a crappy boat and a shitty car. So <laughs> when you're building these four buyers, I, there's an added challenge because a lot of times clients don't understand the duress cycles and the durability and the added complexity of the four-wheel drive systems and, and everything. But at the same time, you always have to meter every decision with its on-road refinement and capability, with its off-road prowess, and trying to walk that nice edge of not over-prioritizing one over the other. But it's like the EV stuff complicates that by a huge multiple because the tech is moving so quick that you know, the value retention on my vehicles, fortunately, has just been amazing. But suddenly, as I embrace that rapid-moving tech, then it's like I'm selling iPhone 5s a year later. 
and I worry about what that looks like, you know, for, for my client and, and, and for the brand. And, you know, we've thought of all different ways to kind of manage that and make them submodular and adaptable. And the ones I've done so far have been to clients that I clearly express my concern about that and say, you know, but here's what we think we can do to make it more evolvable and serviceable and how to address all that. But at the same time, it's a whole new thing. So how long until you guys do an autonomous car? I'm really looking forward to seeing You know, I think, I, I think it'll absolutely never happen under my watch. <laughs> I, I certainly see that in the greater market, that, that trend is inevitable, right? I mean, that ship has sailed. But at the same time, I never, like, everything I, everything we create, we want to make more visceral. Um, we want to reinvigorate that man machine like relationship versus the it's a car is a utility to get you from a to b so even if people's primary cars all become shared app driven autonomous whatever soulless creature you know big badge because it had to be bigger in the year before what is up with that lately with car companies by the way with these grills and badges just well, making it light up too. Uh, illuminated gigantic badging is uh... the first one made sense and then the rest were just, so like audi with their killer diffused led headlights you know i forget the guy's name uh, he's butthurt i met him uh, you know like within <laughs> a half a model year you know everything had him on him and he's like oh yeah. come on guys yeah. yeah but uh but yeah it's um i think the ev world's quite interesting we've built three so far and I think there's a lot of neat stuff to explore there, but how to keep that visceral connection and how to assure the longevity, because I'm trying to build stuff that's going to last for decades. So am I making that impossible by that decision? And that, I guess that's the core question. Wow. You really, you made your job completely heavy. We went from, you've got the coolest job in the world to, I don't think this guy sleeps at night. What is the future <laughs> of hot rodding? Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's um, it's uh, again with all the all the resources and capabilities coming to the market, and even with the liabilities of the rapid evolution of new technologies, if we all keep an open mind and continue to try and embrace and tinker and test stuff, I think that there's really an opportunity for some just really expressive unique singular designs that aren't focus group Wall Street corrupted and help reconnect people to, to that kind of experience uh, before it's gone. So I'm going to make a note to myself to scrap my plans to submit a rendering for the autonomous Avanti to you. <laughs> no, no interest then oh. in, the, in an autonomous Astrovan? You know, it's got to, Oh, now I, you're talking not. Oh. No, how about an autonomous PT cruiser program oh. to go off the closest cliff? <laughs> <laughs> For autonomous Priuses that are designed to be attracted to one another and fight battle deaths. Okay, that would be awesome. Now you're talking. On the freeway, imagine that going on. It's like, there's a car fire. No, it's, check it out, it's two car fires. That would be an uh, interesting terrorist EPROM update. Yeah. <laughs> Death shot. Imagine that reader board on the freeway. Prius. Yeah, exactly. How are you going to break that down to 20 characters or less? Yeah. <laughs> Prius only lane. That'd be great. Uh, I love the PT Cruiser idea. 
we could talk poo about them forever. And there have been several times where I've been driving like my 52 DeSoto wagons, my daily driver. And it's like at least a half dozen times, someone in a PT cruiser, usually with louvers and the Woody kid and the like, and they're <laughs> so, so bonded and feel so connected and give me that thumbs up. And like, I, I'm just not rude enough not to like, at least nod my head in acknowledgement back, but at least they, at least they, at least they have a relationship with their transportation. But you know, the business model behind it is really the most genius of it all. Do you ever hear any of the stories behind it? No. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I think it was the Neon platform had been designed and developed and they anticipated huge global volume for it and no one was buying them and they were freaking out and there was a design, an internal design competition to come up with something under which we can repurpose that platform. And uh, so I wish Lenfield, I could remember I didn't his win, name huh? was Doug. Yeah, you're right. So it was actually quite cool from an industrial conundrum um, business challenge that uh, they were able to pull that off. Yeah, and on that note, though, on the opposite end of the spectrum of I wish they'd never had pulled it off would be the Yugo. And one of the funniest automotive books ever that Johnny Lieberman recommended to me years ago, and I'm always telling everyone about, called uh, The Worst Car Ever Made. Okay. It's the story of Malcolm Bricklin's shenanigans with Yugo and the, uh, just like it would make the funniest dysfunctional film you've ever seen. It is just uproariously hysterical. You just can't believe the crap those guys were pulling trying to make that happen. People forget that Bricklin was involved in the whole Yugo thing. People think, oh, Bricklin and his Bricklin car. No, he was involved in the Yugo as well. I think he was the guy He was involved in a lot of things that didn't... Yeah, he was involved in a lot of things that didn't pan out as the investors had hoped they would. No, he... Yeah, that that whole safety vehicle. I got a buddy who just sold two Bricklins. He came into those as part of a trade. And yeah... I always wanted one when I was a kid. I thought they were super cool. They got a lot but of potential. They have a ton of potential. I, no, maybe... There's someone who contacted me who's bringing it back with the support of the family, if I recall correctly. They um, they were deep into renderings and scale models and seemed like they were going for it. Wow. Is this going to be like a modern version or just a rehash with the old yeah, molds? Yeah, yeah, from, from from what I understood. No, not from the old molds. They're reinterpreting <laughs> and evolving it. But uh, They're making a bigger version to... called the Blocklin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess the funny thing with those, the doors either leaked when it rained or if it was hot out, the fiberglass was unsupported and they'd yeah. swell and you'd be stuck in the car and you couldn't open the doors. That's what people love the most about them from... From what I hear. How, how much safer can you get? That's a car that just gives you a hug. Yeah. But you know, it's funny. It's like sometimes the cars that were the biggest nightmares are the ones that we remember still the most fondly, right? Yeah. There's something yeah. interesting about that. People love DeLoreans. It wasn't that great of a car, but there's a no, they rabid, the fan, but, they're rabid fan base. Yeah, totally. Perfect example. Or like personally, one of the dream car I'd like to build for myself. I love the Aston Martin Lagondas from the, uh-huh. the, the series guys, one, yeah. twos, and threes. Yeah, and they're just a beautiful disaster. Like the LM2000, I think it's called <laughs> the Lamborghini SUV. Just a bucket of crap. I mean, just a train wreck. But they're so cool that like, it's it's like a challenge. Like I'd love to just take one of those Astons apart and get rid of all the Nixie tubes and all the crap and 
powertrain and suspension and just geek out on it. But it's it's probably dumb because you're starting with something that you know is not well done. <laughs> <laughs> just combine yeah. all of the worst designs ever. You're like, okay, let's see. We'll do the unreliability of British induction. Yeah. Uh, French look yeah. of a Pontiac, Az- <laughs> Pontiac Aztec design. Yeah, but with Lucas wiring. <laughs> yeah. Juice <laughs> brakes. Yeah, juice brakes. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget the dropped I-beam. And why is, why is everyone just, the, the hot rodder guys just won't give up on that. And even like the smartest, best of the old school builders, they'll talk you blue in the face about how they have the perfect angle and splice and kingpin rotation. And they can make it just perfect like a new car, like independent. And like, no, you can't. It's just not what it is. You only do so much. They look cool, but yeah. again, like, how do you build a 32 high boy with four wheel independent without just ruining the aesthetic? Oh. So I guess that's the other side of it. Oh. Even fenders can't hide that. You think? I'd like to think I could do like a 37 Zephyr or 34 Nash or something fun. It's got with... some big fenders. Well, it depends. What yeah, you, you got to maybe cantilever maybe stuff, scoop maybe? them in more. Do do more Figioni Falashi style and actually close out the wheel opening more to hide it all if you had to but yeah man it'd be worth it like we do the i love art morrison um personally and him and craig are just phenomenal human beings i don't know if you've ever had a chance to work with people craig's awesome just the best and their engineering team matt jones and the guys i mean they're just on their game and man they're four-wheel independent chassis it's like you're going to order let's say an icon thriftmaster and not get the independent suspension, like, well, then don't order it. Like, it's just so much better. It's, like, just phenomenally better. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's not debatable. It's pretty wild. Now, now my brain is going completely haywire on ways to hide a really cool trick, IndyCar style, front oh, suspension yeah. under, like, a uh, 32 Ford. Well, it's been done. Yeah. It's fun, too, with the engineers. You know, you get the right engineer who has a sense of aesthetic, a sense of design, which, as you know, is a rare beast. But you get those guys on a team, and then, you know, they buy into where you're trying to go, and then they continue to innovate from yet a different perspective. And I, I, I think that's super cool. I love that. It's one of my favorite things to do is when, you know, especially doing a lot of renderings when you get that call, and it's a creative group of guys. So you get like, you know, you get like a Troy or the Ring Brothers or somebody like that. And you just get deep into their head and they get deep into your head. And pretty soon, you know, it's 3.30 in the morning and you're still sketching away on something because you're too excited yeah. to go to bed. Do you sometimes feel that you and, and the other creatives on the team have a deeper understanding and appreciation um, than the consumer does? Um like so, sometimes they worry people don't understand the multiple layers of the onion and that's kind of cool and in being a convenience where it just looks cool and I want to drive it you know that's fine and dandy but sometimes like we'll deliver something like one of my all-time favorite one-offs that we did I delivered it to a guy and he pointed out spot welds on the cabin sheet metal on the interior roof panels as being unacceptable but they're factory and I didn't rebody it. And it's like part of the charm of the take the design on the truck. 
and he wanted to take it immediately and put a bull bar and a big wench and like cow horns oh. on it. Oh. And the truck was like so magical and elegant and clean. It was this 65, uh, actually, wait, I don't know if he listens and piss him off, but let's just say it was a really cool old American crew cab truck. And then that only narrows it down to five. So I won't get in trouble, but <laughs> we can always, it was like, we, we were all crying, you know, the whole team was like, ah, oh, no, like it was perfect. <laughs> In the spot welds bug you, but like, what about that double French stitch hand seam with a waxed edge? What about that nickel plated machined bit? Did you notice that knob that was plastic is now stainless? And do you see the knurling effect on that? That was done on a 40s Cadillac gunsmith lathe. And you know, like, eh. no, those spot welds are unacceptable. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they zero into one weird thing. Yeah. And even if you got the cool story behind those spot welds, if you're like, oh, man, the factory this was made at, the guy responsible for that was this guy named Junior, and Junior was a real boozer, so this truck was built on, like, you know, a Monday morning. Yeah. Right, and notice how the left side, the spot welds are willy-nilly, and on the right side, they're clean. Well, that's because Junior was on the left. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like the, Packard, uh, the old Packard Caribbeans are famous for that in the story. Culturally, at least, the uns unsupportable story was that uh, there were literally left side and right side crews, and they were such low volume cars that they were taking station wagon quarters and snipping and grafting and leading on the line. But apparently, one half of the line were all buddies and like raging alcoholics versus <laughs> the guys on the opposite <laughs> side. So one side of almost every single Caribbean I've ever heard anyone talk about was just a m massive shit show of craftsmanship as opposed <laughs> to the opposing side. And they had nothing to do with each other. If you like try to actually profile gauge them, they were completely random at best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wow, the old that's, days. And that's the neat stuff <laughs> that ties in. And, and then again, I'll, okay, I'm part of the story. I'm a Mopar guy, so I can make fun of it, but the Mopar freaks, they'll go to a point where, like, when they restore a car, they would leave it at that. They'd be like, oh, man, that's all part of the story. The quarter panels on all these core nuts stuck off, you know, an eighth of an inch further, you know, at the back than they did the front because of, you know, something that happened at the plant that day. You know? Yep. Maybe it was like, oh, the other fingers were greasy because it was free French fry day out in the cafeteria. And I'm like, I get that. And then just it's the more I restored, just not for eventually I had to sell stuff, but just for myself. I like, well, wait a minute. Like, yeah, okay, I understand that. But no, <laughs> not cool. <laughs> it was funny. I'm, I've been uh, in Detroit a fair bit the last couple of years on a project. And someone at Ford was telling me that the literally like, published written down acceptable tolerance on the bronco bodies care to guess what that was on the first gen broncos front, front to, to back, back tolerance front yep. to back Ugh. three eighths Hint. of an inch you could use a yardstick <laughs> yeah half an inch half oh, an inch is oh, fine party oh, on it's all good Oy. isn't that wow. wild i think it'd be a banana yeah and then all the poor bastards that went uh some of the earlier companies, well, unfortunately, still the companies that do any aftermarket sheet metal, 
they go buy NOS sheet metal and think they're doing it the right way. Yeah. But all the NOS Fomoco sheet metal back in the 60s was the outbox on the production lines. So you had an inbox and a stack of shims. You're given X amount of time to fit and align that thinner. If it didn't fit, it went in the outbox. The outbox got boxed as Fomoco replacement panels and party on. So they, they, <laughs> they all reverse engineered and mind you with like clay and chalk versus laser scans and any sort of accuracy. These inaccurate examples of the original panels not in their stressed mounted position and then wonder why you're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic trying to build so many of these cars now that you can get such an amazing range of sheet metal, you know, brand new. It's like should be creating this whole new segment. Man, if you got a one-car garage and basic tools and skills, you'd think by now you'd be able to kind of revive the old uh, Mechanics Illustrated ads from my childhood, you know, where you could buy kit cars in the back and, like, build your own 68 Camaro yeah. over the winter. Kid. <laughs> and then none of the damn fit parts fit each other. Nope. So I'm hoping to see that uh, evolve. I think that would be really interesting, right, for our business, for the industry. Not for my business, per se, because <laughs> they build their own stuff. That was, wait a minute. Never mind. But you know yeah, what I mean? Scratch. Like with, with the likes of Art Morrison out there and all the suppliers and all the trim and Denny Carpenter and everybody, there's, there's, it's such, we're so close to there being such an opportunity. And the legal roads for it are getting cleaner and better paved and more definite yeah. and trackable for people. It'd be really cool to see that happen. Oh yeah. Like we, we were just talking a couple of weeks ago about the, the whole, the market in Australia and what's going on there. And they're starting to ease up a lot of their, their regulations. And you got SEMA's working really hard to try to help. Wait them a minute. Really? Australia is backing off and getting reasonable because it was absolutely ludicrous out of control there up until recent, right? Like a lot of the killer coach built guys all just bailed and moved to New Zealand where you can do whatever the hell you want. Oh yeah. yeah. But it's they were like crazy. killing the whole industry there. Yep. So that's really, that's changing. That's so good to hear. Yeah. SEMA, SEMA has gotten really, what is it? Just SEMA Australia, right? Yep. That, SEMA Australia. I'm oh, that's great. Add more to the name. I'm like, it's SEMA International. It's, it's no, it's it's the SEMA Australia thing, and it, they've got a really cool program going on. And I think probably within the next three to five years, the way it looks, I think if that eases up, that market is going to. I mean, those, those are such passionate people to begin with, but I think that market is going to explode in a whole new direction. Yeah, especially when they have a big vintage Americana appreciation. It seems culturally as well. We built a 58 rolls silver cloud derelict uh, for a client in Australia. And we, we were concerned about it. So we told him just flat out, look, like, we don't know. We know how to do what we do. And like, we've got a clear vision for the car, but Australia and is like second only to Switzerland by reputation for difficulty for modifieds and imports. So we ended up working with an engineering consultant over there and they had to literally like sign off on every last thing we changed. And at the end of the day, we still had to keep a significant section of the original chassis under the car, although it was a bucket of poo. I mean, it couldn't be cheesier. It was literally two layers of C-shaped sheet metal, welded, flute welded to each other, and then pinch seam welded. And that's your frame member. It's like, hey, a, okay. a, a, break, a break can't do that. Grab the 18 gauge. That'll work. 
And like, <laughs> and then the car would have been safer and better if we had replaced the whole thing. And it was just a train wreck. We got it. We got it through. And then unfortunately, the client gets there, gets it registered, insured, starts enjoying it, and then has to relocate to, I think it was China or no, Korea. And then the car got sold. But now the car is with this guy in London. And I keep seeing like the funniest postings of this guy at literally like on Bond Street, just roasting around a turn, just full drift in a 58 <laughs> LS7 wide open, just rah, bouncing off of it, <laughs> terrorizing London, which is, I guess, where that car really should be ripping it up. Yeah. Oh, I really no. wonder what their thoughts are of having a, a nasty, gnarly, loud, and obnoxious American V8 in it. Those guys are pretty protective of that Rolls brand. Oh, quite. Yes. No, it's, uh, let's call it polarized. Yeah. So it's either hell yeah or, oh, no. You know, it's <laughs> firmly in one camp or the other. Yeah. I'm one camp is probably of, substantially uh, larger spinning. than the other. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's like we have this Auburn... Um, beautiful 35 Auburn Phaeton and it's a 653 model and the car was on the market and no one would touch it because the traditionalists are like oh that's the six cylinder so they're turning their nose up to it I see it check out the patina fall in love with it instantly and buy it and then try and find a client to actually let me build it which thankfully I did and it's in queue to be built but then they just completely trolled me to death that I'm going to modify the car. And it's like, guys, it was on the market for eight months, and y'all were talking poo. And now I'm actually going to put it back on the road and going to get those stock rare parts back into the network to help restore the other cars. Like, And now you got a problem with it? Yeah, sell somebody over, over in Australia. They'll put some you know, 2,300 horsepower blown motor into it and do donuts. On a six-inch rear tire. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just fun for a while. Yeah. You're like eighth axle. That's like those Tom Nelson motors. We're doing a build with Tom. And some of the cars, like people put these like 2,000 horsepower jet fuel pump gas twin tank, twin ECU, twin injector, 692s in like a T-top 80s Camaro that it's literally going to rip the car in half. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. It's cool to all the different creative, silly ideas that uh, we all come up with from our big block bar stools through to whatever it might be. You know, at least people are playing and celebrating and keeping that creative spirit floating. Well, I'm going to try it one last time then, since you didn't like the autonomous Avanti. I'm going to go back. How about, what if we do an Astro van, okay? Electric, autonomous. Now hear me out on this before you say no. This could change your entire business thing. We market this as the van that does the creeping for you. Ooh. You know, you're, you're getting warmer on your naming, okay, but I'm is... still so out. It's not even funny. That's way too new for me. Too much plastic everywhere. I can't do anything with that. <laughs> just, cra just crap what about a, like what about with a those push clips onto other crap. Well, we'll do a Divco then. Okay, now you're warming up. Now we're there you pulses. go. Or, or a Helms. We could do like a Helms Bakery uh, autonomous Panera delivery fleet. <laughs> Panera. I don't, you know, like, I'd love to do the design and have that sort of mandated challenge, right, to reference the history and, and create relevance. 
And then I'd love to have absolutely nothing to do with mechanical execution. Let someone up in the Bay Area knock that out. It just it never, and it just doesn't speak to me. Like I just don't. If I, I want that control. I still enjoy driving. Me I still too, drive see. manuals. God forbid. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I get a good point. Think about the resale value. When the bakery's done with it, they could sell it to a dispensary. There you go. You know? Or actually, the, probably the dispensary is the only business model that would be pro-funding it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. For a couple reasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just scored more points. You drive a DeSoto wagon every day, and you went that route. Nicely played. I think so much fun. It's the first derelict we built. It's got a 6.1 Hemi SRT8 Fuelie. I on my second 545RF, I think it's called, Chrysler Tranny, I hate it. So I just threw it away and put in a good old GM 4L85, and I'm back to pounding on it. But yeah, that car is so much fun. Smart. Well, see, and, and a Mopar, guys. You hear that? Mopar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, GM transmission. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, cool. We're doing cool. a car. We're doing a Cherokee right now with a Kaiser Gladiator front clip. And all sorts of fun cosmetic tweaks, but sort of like, uh, again, a revisionist history. Like if they had built the two-door Cherokee in the 60s when it was still Kaiser's party. Oh, cool. What would that look like kind of thing? And then like the the interiors on those, they have that sort of, uh, in the leathercraft world, what we call the Sheridan tooling, the Old West, like tool saddle aesthetic. And it's just dielectric stamped into the vinyl cardboard panels and everything. So we're going to actually hand tool all of that in saddle leather with uh, this rock star uh, leather western saddle maker friend of mine and, and emulate and copy the original pattern but butterfly it left and right in the car. But it's actually done by hand, not emulating that tradition and stuff like that. It's going to be so much fun. And we're going to run that 6.4 uh, fairly rational SRT8 Hemi versus the Helifont um, despite the uh, urging of the trolls I want to yeah, keep it reasonable I yeah. think 680 horse will be plenty yeah, you don't that'll need do. a thousand horsepower at, and, oh, I never thought I'd say that in my life you don't need <laughs> it it's funny though because I find myself yin and yang and on that one like I love the LS3 and then we'll be doing a particular project and the client will say no nah, I want it to be a little more radical let's do an LS7 or a 9 or whatever and like it's I have, I for the most part, haven't gotten to the oh that's too much power feeling. Like now I'm like in love with the LS9 from all the nine builds. But th- I think to me it's more about metering, not getting into a lopy RV cam that can barely idle that overheats at the light and God forbid you try and run the AC at that light while in gear without feathering the gas in neutral. And so I always try and like stay out of those cul-de-sacs. So. I guess this Tom Nelson 1,000-horse motor we're doing is the most impractical we've done. I can blame that on my client. This is the fifth vehicle we've built for him, and he keeps pushing me to go crazier. So I'm saying, all right, fine. Let's do it. I always <laughs> like Tom. Give it a shot. Yeah. That's going to be a fun one, though. It's one of those uh, three-door Suburbans. We turned it into a four-door because it never seemed to make sense that they only had three doors. And it's got that Art Morrison foil independent and all sorts of fun stuff built into it. It's going to be a beast. So, well, gosh, between that, the, uh, the Hudson, what, anything else coming down the pipe you can talk about or is there any, sure. Any we, um, 
Uh, we have a secret project we can't talk about yet, probably about a year away at best from announcing that's been a major brain and stress, brain drainer, stress creator, and money dwindler um, wow. that I'm super excited about that's super innovative and should really take it to the next level. Got a bunch of fun one-offs in queue. That 35 Auburn I'm looking forward to. We've got a uh, 49 Studebaker Starlight Commander Coupe in queue. We got a 41 Cadillac four-door bumped back sedan, which I always love those. That'll be a derelict for uh, bar hopping in Costa Rica. That one'll be fun. I got a Ferrari 250 GTE that we're gonna rebody and take a bunch of liberties with. Got a 70 Highboy four by short bed that we're doing very retro and I'm super excited that just went to paint last week. Uh, got a pending P1800 Volvo hot rod, uh, Barquetta removable hard top that we're rendering and playing with for a guy, all sorts of fun stuff. And especially with the, even the production models with the old school, especially the Bronco, this new exploration and color, palette and houndstooth and plaids and 60s and 70s funk it's uh, a whole whole new play of color material that's uh, really kind of fun to explore and come up with unique equations for yeah and it's funny that you mentioned a couple of those cars because i was going to ask you i was going to say in the the late 80s and early 90s in the hot rod world one of the trends was this whole dare to be different deal and, you know, I think it was because we were at the point where everything had been tubbed out, everything had been made into a street machine. Yeah, every 32 high boys smoothie in red. Right, and, and it was like you search for the weirdest possible vehicle, so all of a sudden you had this influx of, like, these bizarro little cars that you wouldn't have even thought of, like a Nash Metropolitan, you know, a 33-inch Mickey Thompson's on the back. Yeah, ladder bars. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, like, is is there one really weird out there car that you'd just be itching to do? Yeah, I've I've always had a thing for I like the weird stuff in general, but there's almost not a single not gorgeous example of the early Alfa Romeo eight C and six C bodies from the thirties. And I've always thought those would make a very interesting the size and scale and grace of them um, really sort of sets it up to be a very enticing project. I'd love to do a derelict gullwing and piss off whoever I haven't pissed off yet. That That's one I've always wanted to build up. And a lot of the, like there's weird cars like the, you know, a European opal from the 60s that you know may look like a scaled falcon and no one really knows or some of the bogward isabellas or fossil vegas i like all the the freaks and orphans for sure and um like you said i think that there's something more interesting about it being a shape and a form that you've never really stopped to take note of and if 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 what my team can create makes you stop and go, wait, whoa, that's cool. What is that? And like engage with it. That's super fun. Like I've been trying to talk someone into building. Um, we have a Hudson big boy pickup that I just fell in love with and bought and just sitting in my lot and I can't talk anyone into it. I'm like, they're so cool. Yeah. They're designed by a woman too. So there's a, a certain grace to them that you will not see in any other American made pickup of, of really any other manufacturer. 
at that time and they're they're super nifty they they look yep. chopped and channeled and stretched and all tweaked out just from the factory yep there's no other truck that looks like those they are easily identifiable and they are cool yeah they're super cool and the early hudson like the terraplane era trucks are super sexy and the what was the uh, Studebaker? I think it was in 37, had a gorgeous little pickup as well. Yeah, like there's so many oddities that, you know, weren't the Tri-5 Chevy or the AC Cobra or the GTO or the whatever for whatever cultural reasons, right? Probably from impressions, right? Because we just saw that many more of them or in the movies. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I want to do a bubble top. Mm. I love bubble tops. It's something yeah. so graceful, such an open greenhouse. That'd be fun. I'd like to do a 62, 63. And of course, me being me, I'd probably want to do the Oldsmobile or Pontiac version instead right. of the oh, usual sure. version. <laughs> yeah. Like I'd rather build a Star Chief over a Nomad 10 to 1, as much as I love Nomads. Oh, yeah. There's just something really cool, like the Safari and everything like that. Just it's such a... Do you remember the uh, the Waldorf, that Corvette concept? Yeah, Waldorf Nomad. Nomad. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. That'd be, I'd love to make that. That'd be fun to, like, hydroform aluminum, state-of-the-art, revisit that original design as a production model. I've always been drawn to those. They had such a great scale and flow to them. They're arguably, to me, as a shooting break, more elegant than the production models. Years ago, I had done a, a couple of concepts for, for Rod and Custom Magazine where I did a what if, you know, what if Oldsmobile had had a two-door wagon along the lines of the oh, Nomad Safari. And I can't help but think, like, if you took one of the earlier Olds, what was it, the F88, the concept yeah. car, and combined that as a Waldorf Nomad style, but for Oldsmobile, that, that, that car would be so bitchin'. How about a how about a Starfire two door wagon? How oh. cool would that be? Okay. Take that wraparound language from the sedan. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. god! Oh, with that that stainless panel coming on the side. Yep, uh -huh. that'd be so hot. Badass. I would dig take that crap. back into the rear quarter. There was a builder, a hobbyist builder, uh, here in the valley that used my powder coater back when I was a teenager, and the guy just had the most amazing taste. And I remember he built, he took a 48 four-door plain Jane Ford sedan, and he took a Volvo, like an Amazon, and he created the four-door wagon 48 Ford that never existed, but then did it like dead stock concourse. So like the Ford geeks would tweak out and try and tell their friends about what it was and not realize it never happened. It never existed. <laughs> or like there, there's a retired GM engineer that a couple of years ago, the, the, one of the most breathtaking cars, one of my all time favorites, the, the Bentley Empiricos, just a phenomenal, I think it was 1937, gorgeous car. So this retired uh, interior engineer design design engineer for GM that was like his retirement project he went and bought a Bentley 6 chassis and just built the Embiricos Roadster that never got built and just sketched it up and executed it and it's breathtaking oh this is the kind of thing we could we could do this all night <laughs> I love yeah. stuff like that mm -hmm. 
it's funny. Anything I see that reminds me of something old that had great style to it, like if you can go like <laughs> shooting brakes and stuff like that, as weird as they are, I love like what are they? The Volvo eighteen hundreds. Yeah, I own one. The ES is what the shooting brake would have, would have been an eighteen hundred ES. There, yeah, they were made in seventy three and seventy four only. Incredibly underappreciated, beautiful car. So my dumbass has one that's like grandpa original owner, dead stock, blue plates. It's a manual with overdrive. But I mean, those cars had independent suspension, four-wheel disc brakes, fuel injection, overdrive. And that car dead stock is surprisingly capable versus most cars of that model year. But then I bought a 63, which is like, to me, the sexy purest version of the original 1800 coupes, the Jensen bodied ones. So those very first examples had like, sort of like as a watch geek, like the, the, the gauges remind you of the vintage Abercrombie, uh, chronographs and incredible surfaces and colors and cast iron egg crate grill and our cast aluminum and then really cool defrost intake and the cow horn bumpers. So I want to take my 73 and build the theoretical 63 ES wagon and put a new Polestar powertrain under it. But I bought too nice of an ES wagon, and now I don't have a – well, I guess me not having the heart to take it apart doesn't matter because I just don't have the time and the money. I I've so many things I'd love to build for myself, but with our backlog, I, there's like, I can barely replace the transmission I blew up in, in my wagon, not to mention – do a full geek out <laughs> build. <laughs> so only way to compensate and try and meet that goal is I just try and talk potential clients into my more obscure build ideas. At least I get to build it and test drive it before they get it. It's funny because I was looking for a first car for my kid and I, I just, of all the, the dopey cars come across, it's not really a collector car by any stretch, but uh, I came across this 2009 Volvo C30. And so much oh, yeah, of it they're cool. reminds me of that, the older Volvo wagon. I couldn't pass it up, you know? I mean, hey, it's a safe car for a kid's first car. It's fun Perfect, as hell. Yeah. It's, like a, it's like a moped, you know? It's fun to drive around, but you don't want, to, you know, you don't want your friends to see you. And right. It, uh, it's so weird. Little styling cues, though, that kind of found their way in from those old wagons to that. Kind of a cool deal. Yeah, I agree. And um, both of my sons... Their uh, first car experience was always a FZJ80 Land Cruiser. So the 95 to 97, slow as hell, safe as a tank. And then uh, after uh, they served their time and not bounce off of too many things or get tickets, then they got to graduate. And my 17-year-old's like massive passion, he's a one, he wants to be an engineer, and his massive geek out has always been the BMW 2002s. So... That's what uh, I helped him get, and then he saved up. And then all last summer, and it's looking like some of this summer yet again, he's been tweaking and restoring and modifying and, like, put those 80s BBSs on it, which just kill me. But it's a generational thing. I'm like, no, i got to put the Coke cap hubcaps back on there. And he's like, ah. But he got a nice little TII, and he's like, stole the AC out of one of my 2002s and did his suspension has done all his brakes. Like he's just dived in and learned. And it's, it's, uh, it's sad though, because in a rather large class of students, like only he and 
two out of 40 even have a license, not to mention have any attachment to cool cars. That's the but he's thing. all in. Yeah, meanwhile, my 20-year-old's a ricer with a BRX, or BRZ, <laughs> you know, lowered HREs, and I'm just embarrassed. It's not really fair. <laughs> I don't think he knows I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> well, like the guy, the uh, I'm I'm friends with uh, one of the L.A. sort of car clubs of that culture, and uh, I'll, like, put a sticker from, you know, Speed Zone or something on his car just to screw with him once in a while. I, I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. We were all over the place. I hope everyone yeah. kept up with us. <laughs> well, if they didn't, they can go back and listen again. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Well, I appreciate your all's collective uh, perspectives, and uh, I love that you really get what I'm trying to do here and oh. uh, what we're all trying to do. I keep trying not to say I because the industry acts like I'm just this one guy pumping out all these vehicles and ideas, and I'm just the idiot with the idea and the audacity to push more talented people <laughs> to actually get it done. <laughs> my merely my role. But the yeah, I, I uh, had a good time with you guys. Oh, thanks, man. We did yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And thank you again, man. Thank, thanks for doing what you do. That's yeah, yeah. I love what you thank do. You. Appreciate it. So do I, fortunately. Mostly. <laughs> and well, that's good. Mind. That's important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's everything. All right. Be well. Have a good night. Hey, you too, right, man. See you, John. All right. See ya. <clears throat> man, we, we obviously have a lot more to go over with Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> it's an understatement, right? <laughs> yeah, we didn't even scratch the surface. We didn't get into the watches. Um, nope. A whole lot of stuff we didn't get into. So much cool stuff, but you know, what a what a what a fun conversation though. I mm-hmm. I enjoyed the hell out of this one. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to admit yeah. it. I love this one. This is a fun time. Yeah, it was. It's fun to sit and talk with somebody that's so passionate and that just gets it. It just it's really really fun. Just happy the guy drives a Desoto wagon every day. I'm the hero status. It's done. Daily. Yeah, daily. every day. That's awesome. So many cool things. And what's funny is to me. The first time I, I think I was at the SEMA show and saw one of their builds, I think that was one of the thrift that the Thriftmaster builds. And I remember walking past that it was in the <laughs> concourse. And to me it just seemed like it was this weird thing. It was like this this icon company put these things together. And it seemed so weird and kind of like ethereal. And you don't know, it's really it's just a dude who's super passionate and built a really passionate team to put together some really cool cars. Mm-hmm. He's got some talent down there. There's no doubting that. Oh yeah. What what stuck out to me the most, man, the the quote of the the episode was when he said, "I want my stuff to be whomped on." <laughs> <laughs> it's such a it sums up the whole thing, man. I think it's all right. Fun. You know, there's not many builders that say that, you know, because they know that their customers might go out there and beat on something and they probably cringe going, oh, he's going to find every weak link in it. I love the fact that John goes, man, nail this thing. Give it hell. And that's awesome. Just it, man. And I, yeah, I'm not going to put any hard money on ever convincing him to do the, uh, the Avanti. <laughs> so much potential right there. I mean. I wouldn't want it because it's going to drive itself. But the fact that, you know, it's got alliteration, that makes my day. It's so weird, though, to talk to someone who... His challenge, I think, with building a hot rod 
is so different from the average hot rodder though because he's he has to look at all this weird obsolescence mm -hmm. and that like i said that would that would keep me up at night <clears throat> well just looking then, for parts that's the like oh well, <laughs> and he's got to incorporate all the late model stuff without it make it look like it's tacked on he's got to make it look like it's integrated and it grew there and uh, that's a challenge that's tough Exactly. I mean, anybody could put switches all over a dash for all these late model features. The idea is to try to not make it look like it's got it all, but it has it all. You know, there's subtle stuff everywhere and nothing looks like it's, you know, hole drilled in the most adjacent location with a switch stuck in it. This car had really, really cool, you know, <laughs> dimmer control knobs from the factory. Yeah. Well, how come there's 38 of them? Yeah. <laughs> I decided to just drill the seat heater switches right in the top of the dash. It's like, no, <laughs> no, can't do that. That's a good spot for that. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, your passenger's roasting his nuts off because, you know, you took the old choke lever and you wired that <laughs> yeah. up to the seat heater. The choke, the choke lever in my truck is actually the heater control. See that? Hey, it opens that opens the water valve up up in the engine compartment. <laughs> I'm still telling you though, I. I not to pat myself on the back, but I think it's a cool idea if you could take the choke lever and one of those and somehow have it change the tune on the engine just so it gives you that little bit of a, you know, an, an old school feel in the morning. Things well, just have it open some, ma some manual exhaust bypasses. Yeah, with electronic engines, you could almost have it where it just switches it to another mode of some sort that just fattens everything up. Throws it into some weird limp home. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing fuel everywhere. God, this thing's fat in the morning. To work with an exhaust company to come up with a muffler that can handle all the backfires. Yeah. <laughs> Has a drain on it. You can drain all the fuel out of it when you get to work. <laughs> we pull for the moisture? Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> but this would be cool. And I, I couldn't help but think during the whole episode, if, if I had to put together a dream team, and this is weird because we're all, we all kind of came from really traditional hot rod routes. The three of us, I think, I, I really, I can't help but embrace the modern stuff because, you know, talking to him brought up all those memories, you know, talking to, you know, our good friends over at Speedcore and the stuff that those yeah. guys are doing. What a dream team mashup that would be. Wow. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if the world's ready for the all carbon fiber thrift master. I think the fiber master, <laughs> see, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fiber master I, i'm trying my best to make up for the earlier names that failed i mean nobody liked the uh the autonomous astro driving that truck will make you regular what? <laughs> sponsored by raisin brand <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah big thanks again to uh to jonathan for joining us um i hope you guys yeah. enjoyed that little it, it's weird because it's a little <laughs> off the beaten path, but it's right dead center with the, the kind of stuff we're all into. Sure. Yeah. You can't help but be excited. And I, if you haven't had a chance to get online, uh, you got to check out that Hudson they're building. There's some teaser videos online. And the thing, a Hudson A just looks cool to begin with. To me, they always look like just a cooler, sleeker Merc. You know, and um, this thing's badass. And as soon as he put the story behind it, you know, this is the kind of thing you could cruise, you know, to like a rockabilly bar out in Tennessee, you know, out in Nashville. That's kind of what theme cars should be. You know, it, it's not like he went, hey, this is going to be a rockabilly car. So, okay, so the front fenders are going to be made of old Gibson guitars. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's going to have a microphone gear shift knob and a drum pedal, gas pedal. It's like, we've seen this before. No, can't do that. Can't the, do that. The snare drum back seats are cool. Until you hit a bump. <laughs> it's got, it's got just the mirror. Cat. You got a ringing in your ears over there. Oh, yeah. man. The symbol <laughs> steering wheel and, yeah. The symbol no. moon, the symbol moon disc hubcap. Say the hi hat <laughs> moon discs would be hung a, hung a hard right and lost a digit. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, all the grill teeth are keys from a piano. How great would this be? <laughs> all right. Well, we're that one totally stupid. The rest of the episode was very intelligent. So, uh, yep. and speaking of intelligent, uh, you, you need if you're out in the garage moving your trailer around, you need to work smarter and not harder. Uh, by all means. Head over to trailertug.com. <clears throat> check out the uh, it's it's the world's strongest trailer dolly, and I, I can't say thanks enough to our continuing sponsors, our good friends over there, at Trailer Tug. You guys, you guys are awesome. Go online, just thank them for bringing this to you. Not not the whole keyboard grill, hi hat symbol hubcap having car thing, but like the good parts of this episode. <laughs> thank them for that. Don't blame them for the other stuff. But there you go, man. Trailertug.com. Give them a visit. Uh, listeners of the Round 6 podcast get 10% off their order at checkout when they use the special code ROUND6. So uh, there we go, kids. This is what was this was episode 65. Wow. Yeah, dude, it's almost as old as you, Brad. Almost. It's close. Close. Sure. What? Nothing. Come on, who loves you? I said nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, kids. Uh, be sure to check this out. Um, this episode here. Uh, check out the show notes for any important links. I'll put a link in here to at least one or two of the videos over at from Icon, so you can see their cool stuff. Uh, check them out online. Give them a follow. Give them a like. Tell them we sent you. And uh, thank you for um, for continuing to listen to us. For whatever reasons you have. We apologize for most of them. Except the one. Except that one. I'm not taking that back. There you go. All right, guys. Well, um, at the end of this, another episode of the Round 6 podcast. Uh, I am a shoddily pinch-welded Brian. I'm a, uh, I'm a thriftier Brad. I'm a derelict fan. <laughs> 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 Huge work. fan. <laughs> Very nice. I think we all are after this, man. Um, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yes, sir. All right, guys. Thank you again for listening, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next week. Bye. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram. And be sure to check out all of our latest videos on YouTube.com. Big thanks once again to our sponsor, Trailer Tug. Please visit them at TrailerTug.com and learn more about the world's strongest trailer dolly. Our listeners receive 10% off their order when they use the discount code ROUND6 at checkout or when calling their order in 